0: Hello and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano and I'm Stuart and in today's episode we'll be looking at 1973's Life in a Tin Can. It seems like quite a while since we've done one of these album discussions. Well it's amazing how time goes isn't it? I mean obviously we had the last one
1: with with Joseph. It's quite nice to have that little break and it's sort of because I I think there's two different albums from what we discussed with the previous one to this one. So it sort of stopped the flow and it lets us
0: go into this one quite quite nicely. And as we'll find out, this album deserved that extra time for investigation because my initial thoughts on this album compared to my thoughts on it now have differed so much from the research and, and from looking at the context of the album.
1: It still amazes me that we're still talking about 1972, aren't we? You know, we're saying, oh, we we had a break, listen to Joseph and the and the two albums, but in reality, they were just pouring song after song out, weren't they? And it just
0: amazes me that 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 we we've got two totally different products. Life in a Tin Can. It was recorded. There's no specifically known dates other than it was at the Record Plant in Los Angeles. Around September 1972.
1: Yeah, that's what that's what I read, Chris. There's, I think between this and and the, the next
0: album, it's a little bit on the vague side. What surprised me the most was that To Whom It May Concern was released October 1972. Life Knit in Can was released January 1973. Three months between albums. And I think we're so lucky that they were so productive then to be able to to go through all these albums. And not that we've had all of this material released. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the eight songs on Life in a Tin Can. For the first time, there are no extra songs from this period that we'll be discussing in the episode. That's right, yeah. Because all of the extra songs belong to the next album that never was. A kick in the head is worth eight in the pants. But what I thought we'd do, Chris, on this one,
1: there are a few singles that we've missed that I thought we'd just go through at the end of the episode just have a little brief and, and a quick listen. Some of them are worth a quick listen. Some are worth a spending a little bit more time on. It's just quite nice. I went through it and I thought, well, we haven't covered this and one or two bits and pieces. So we'll see as we get
0: towards the end of the episode, which ones I think are worth a keepers. Life in a Tin Can was released 19th of January in the US and then quite a delay released on the 1st of March in the UK. I wonder why the delay was. Because now everything
1: simultaneously isn't it was you know Spotify and one thing and another. I sometimes think it depends whether how they were going to promote the album, whether it means they could spend more time in in the US, go around promoting it. Once they've done the US, come back to
0: Europe, and 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 do it there. I don't think it's a coincidence that for their first album to be recorded in the US, for it to then be released beforehand in the US. I think that had something to do with it. And this is also the first album that's under Robert Stigwood's Red Cow label. You, you know, you get used,
1: when you buy the, when I used to buy the vine, you get so used to seeing a certain label. And I was always associating Richard the Bee Gees with, with Polydor. So yeah, it was quite strange when it, when it pulled out and you got, as you say, you got this,
0: what is it actually? A cow. A cow. A cow okay. or, or a bull. In 1972, Barry spoke about the recording of Life in a Tin Can, saying, We've been experimenting with lots of new sounds. We've tried an entirely different approach. It's the best thing we've ever done, we think, and everyone who has heard it agrees. I did find somewhere
1: on the internet where where there was an interview with with Morris, and it was done in between To Whom It May Concern and Tin Can, and he did say that our next album's going to be a concept one. So I think, I'm wondering with things like that, that this is where we come into the thing of this album, where you look through the internet and people seem to read
0: into it quite a bit and there's a storyline. Well, I'm looking down at my notebook and I've got uh, a page and a half worth of notes on Soar New Morning. Oh, right. I, I'm one of
1: those people. We'll say that then to a, <laughs> bit, to a little bit later, but you, you've probably got more of imagination than me, but I, I, I must admit I struggled a bit Okay. to find a, a real link. Yeah. And again, going through the internet where people are saying that There's a storyline going through this and that storyline follows on on side one of Kicking the Head.
0: Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Interesting. To be discussed. I found that quotation from Morris. Uh, He said, we're going to attempt a concept album that's a major departure from our usual Bee Gees trademarks. And if that doesn't work out, we'll do something else. And they definitely did do something else (laughs) afterwards. Yeah. (laughs) And there was an interview with Robin which I thought was rather telling as to why the Bee Gees may have decided to go to the record plant in LA, to go to America, instead of England, to record their album. He said, England is now far behind the rest of the world's music scene, whereas it used to lead. In America, our music has become an institution. The American people understand what we're about, whereas in England, people tend to disregard us. For some reason, they don't accept that we progress. And I can imagine that at the back of his mind, he's thinking of things like, "How can you mend a broken heart?" Yeah, examples of that kind, where America success, England ignored. Well, I'm, I, I sort of agree, and sort of disagree with him because I
1: think that even though they were for their age, they were young, and they, they were producing all these hits in the '60s. I think at the beginning of the '70s, there was there was a change in music, and I think people saw them as a '60s group, and. There's not many 60s groups that were probably as big as the Bee Gees that progressed into the 70s. Mm. I
2: mean,
1: you've got groups like Fleetwood Mac, beginning of the 70s. They, they completely went. And obviously, had to reinvent themselves when Christine McVie and and Stevie Nicks and, and Lindsay Buckingham all got together. The Beach Boys. The Beach Boys, they completely faded, didn't they? So... I still think that they were probably seen as a singles band and from the 60s. So I think, you, I can understand, as you say, with Robin's frustration with, with, with not having because I think he was, out of the Three Brothers, he was the one that liked the big hits. Yeah. And that must have been a, a kick in the teeth that they wasn't getting them. Though, in the 72, you know, they were getting sort of top 20 hits. But yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and obviously, I can only say from growing up in the UK, that the music scene was very... 73 was the height of glam rock. Yeah. You know, glitter, men wearing makeup. David Bowie was, was Ziggy Stardust. And it, that is so far removed from, from what they were doing. But saying that, that it, it's a funny year, there was a quite a, a lot of retro into the music as well. You were getting groups doing 50s pastiche stuff.
0: So it was a big, it was all a bit of a hodgepodge, 73. And there's another musical trend that was happening in 1972, 73, that I think explains what the Bee Gees were doing. There was a demand in America for English music. So you had a band like Genesis, who went across to America, toured in America, and their album, Selling England by the Pound, it was kind of lapped up by American audiences, because they were so fascinated by English culture. Mm. And I kind of feel like the Bee Gees followed on in that suit and wanted to give that a go because with this album, they're present, they've present. they kind of done it the other way around. They've gone to America to give the English audiences a taste of America and also give yeah. American audiences a taste of what, what, this is what the Bee Gees can do. I think this is a very American album. From the title of the album, from the album artwork, immediately we've got the tin can. And I think... When I think of the tin can, I think it has quite strong connotations to American culture and American artwork. Andy Warhol's tin can design yeah. is a very strong symbol for me of American culture. And to have the the Bee Gees literally on the cover inside of this tin can, they are inside American culture. Opening up the vinyl, looking at the, the gatefold sleeve, we've got this can literally exploding and all of this culture bursting out. We've got the Bee Gees amongst there. We've got a jumbo jet airline. We've got that pizza at 20 cents. I can hardly recognize any of what these things are, but I'm sure that back in 1972, 73, to certain audiences, this would have meant something. Mm. And to other audiences, this would have been, this is really fascinating yeah. to have looked at this. Oh, what's this car? What's, who's this? It's kind of like that Sergeant Pepper thing of who are all these different people? When you get a vinyl, this is what I'm saying. You,
1: you, it's so big. You can, you can, you can lose yourself looking at the sleeve, can't you? Yeah. Whereas when this comes out in a little CD, you got to have eyes on stalks just <laughs> to even see anything, haven't you? So that this is why I think my vinyl's coming back. It's just that it's just the thing of holding a piece of vinyl and going through this. But as you say, it, it's a really fascinating sleeve, and it's it's sort of carried on a bit. With the gatefold sleeve from the previous one where you've got people as the band and the audience.
0: Do you think this is sort of a slice of America then? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's a slice of American life that can be packaged up inside of a tin can and sent over, sent around the world for people to to listen to. And the music on the album, it's no coincidence that you've got titles like Living in Chicago, South Dakota. Yeah. And other references, and there are other songs which we'll touch upon from this album and around this album that are all about American life Dear Mr. Kissinger, King and Country, etc. In as much as To Whom It May Concern may have just been them kicking off their shoes. Whereas we spoke about in that episode a lot about, oh, this is a quite a quirky album, a bit like Idea, Life in a Tin Can kind of puts that aside, and the Bee Gees go for this quote unquote concept album, which is very progressive rock. So, in a way, maybe this is the closest that the Bee Gees ever came, apart from Odessa, to progressive rock. Could be, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't really thought of it that way, actually. i better sit through the eight tracks again and give it, <laughs> give, give it, give it, another,
1: give it another whiz. You wait till you listen to my
0: notes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Going to what you say then, who do you think their audience was in 73? Who were they aiming for? I mean, do you think they were... Do you think... They, obviously, they wanted the people that was with them from 67 to carry on, but... Do you think the style of music they're going, I just don't
0: quite know who they were aiming for on this album? I think you've hit the nail on the head there with the album's biggest problem is that it doesn't really know what it is. I said before about progressive rock and Morris said about it being a concept album. It kind of is to an extent, but it doesn't go all the way. There's no immediate single that jumps out, is there? No, it's it's telling that this is one of the only albums to which there's no song that they kept in their set list to be on 1973 or 74. No, that's true, isn't it? Looking at concerts of them in 89, 97, Tin Can just doesn't exist. I think with Barry, though, he, he tends
1: to think it was a flop. And once anything's a flop, that's Tata goodbye, isn't it?
2: Yeah,
0: sadly.
1: Yeah, he doesn't, it, it sort of erases from his memory and, and, and he concentrates
0: on... What he perceives or what was, and it's why this hasn't been reissued since the nineties. Yeah. When did you first hear this album? Uh, it was on, as I think I mentioned before.
1: It's, it's similar time to so about eighty five, eighty six when somebody did me a cassette of it. This was one side, and to earn um, two years was on the other side. And I, I remember playing it, but I, I, I don't remember repeated listens. Mm. And every every now and again, I would pull the cassette out and give it a, give it a ways, and then put it back again, and
0: put it back in the tin can. Put it, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, it always makes me laugh. I wonder if they did a you know a deluxe edition, whether you get a you know a proper ring pull or something. Well, Nowadays, you would, yeah, yeah. Oh, you get everything, no, wouldn't not you? Not
0: that we were going to get one, but so I first heard it. It was summer twenty eighteen, um, around the time when I was really getting into the BGS properly. I think I'd heard Odessa. And Main Course. And then you, rec- it, yeah, I'd heard Main Course and you said to me, listen to Mr. Natural because it's like a, it, it is a predecessor to Main Course. And then about a week later, I went on to Spotify and I, I went to play an album. I went to look for Mr. Natural, but I couldn't remember the title. So I ended up playing Life in a Tin Can. And I remember listening to it, thinking that it was the album that you'd recommended to me and thinking, oh, I'm a bit... Underwhelmed by this, I don't quite understand what you meant. Yeah, so I played this through a few times, then I realized that, I'd, I'd had gone back too far, moment. yeah, and that I'd missed Mr. Natural. And then that's when I listened to that album yeah. instead. And kind of like yourself, after that point, I never went back to this album, and really not until the past two months when I've been playing it non stop. And well, there's a reason why I've been playing it non stop, it's because I really enjoy it, yeah, I really, really like it. I think it's one of their most underrated albums. Yeah. And
1: you you could put this along with, I think, something like Living Eyes as two albums that I think are quite underrated. Both underrated, but in a sense they've both... Changed styles from the previous album, haven't they? Because you think of Spirits, then going into Living Eyes. Then you've got too many concerned going into Tin Can.
0: And again, Living Eyes is one of the other albums that nothing's ever performed live from no. it. And as you said, Barry's just erased the album. And it, it, it's true because there was an interview in 2021 with Tim Roxburgh celebrating the 40th anniversary of um, Living Eyes, and he interviewed Barry. And Barry had really forgotten most of the album. And it was when Tim was reminding him of the songs on the album that he suddenly... Barry oh, says, okay. oh, I've, I've completely forgotten about that. Yeah, But I really liked
1: that song. It's, one, it's up there with one, one of my favourites, actually. So... Wait two years and we'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah. like you, I, I've given this album a lot, and, but I think to me it's an album where you need to sit back and and just let the music soak in and just get. It's just a nice, relaxing album to listen to. You know, okay, if you you know if you if you're not really listening to it, sometimes it, each track just blends into another one. But yeah,
0: I I, I think it's. It's fine. We'll take a look now at the recording and personnel behind Life in a Tin Can. So, there are no specific recording dates for the songs. This is because they went to America. And for the past year of this podcast, since we started, we've been totally dependent on Andrew Sandoval's book. They cover, I think, obviously, every album and track up until 72, or, or up to prior recording this, this album. But it was in that transition of going to America that the date, recording dates were lost, and all we know is that it was it was in September, and it must have been it must have been up through till like tail end of December to record both albums. That's really, isn't it? Yeah, recording took place at the Record Plant in Los Angeles, and I looked up the Record Plant, and it's a really prolific recording studio. And I've just picked out a few other artists from the mid to late '70s who recorded oh, there. So we had Billy Joel with Piano Man in '73, Stevie Wonder with Inner Visions, 1973. Oh, big album then! Fleetwood Mac, Rumours, '76. The Eagles, Hotel California, '76. And this is a really long list that goes through the Moody Blues, Supertramp, Cheap Trick, Kiss, Elton John, Rod Stewart, Tom Petty, Robbie Williams, Beyonce, Travis Scott. So really huge, well known artists. And there's a second record plant because I'd I'd heard the name before and I knew it from the record plant in New York, which is where John and Yoko did Double Fantasy. Oh, okay, yeah. So I wonder whether the Bee Gees had a decision as to whether they could go to New York or Los Angeles and and chose or whether they were just given one of the two studios. I would think they'd picked a record producer and it's wherever that record producer wanted to um, record at. This is the first Bee Gees album that we've spoken about in this podcast that hasn't had arrangements by Bill Shepard. He left with To Whom It May Concern. In his place, we have Johnny Pate on arrangements. And he's an American jazz bassist who went on to become a really prolific producer and arranger.
1: I've never heard of
0: him. Well, he scored various film soundtracks throughout the 70s, and he worked with artists including B.B. King, Curtis Mayfield, and Duke Ellington. And I think that he was an appropriate arranger to work with the Bee Gees to give their material a really authentic American sound, which mm. I think it has, and I'll talk about that later on, especially with the acoustic songs. And I, I think Johnny Pate acts as a perfect stepping stone from the quite luscious arrangements of Bill Shepard and his orchestras to then the kind of more stripped back... but it's still sparse,
1: isn't it, some parts, yeah. Yeah,
0: the, then, then you go to arif mardin who is still in that american sound but it's a different type it's yeah. a, it's a softer sound you've got more keyboards um as we'll get onto later on so i think it's it's the perfect transition between bill shepherd and the r&b of arif mardin with regards to instrumentation there's alan kendall on guitar and jim keltner on drums and keltner i, I thought was really interesting that he's worked with three solo beatles so he worked with John Lennon on everything from Ono Band right through to rock and roll. So the first half of the 70s. He worked with George Harrison on the majority of his albums from Living in the Material World um, onwards. And then he worked with Ringo on various releases, including his 1973 self-titled. So I just thought, while well, we're talking about 73 albums, we've mentioned a few. But what are, your, what are your memories of 73? Right. Well, 73 was the year
1: I had... My first cassette, I mean, this is the one where you used to, you had to fit a microphone and if you wanted to tape anything, nobody could go into the room, <laughs> you know, and in the UK, you used to have the top 20 on a Sunday night. So that was ideal then to put the microphone against the radio and you had to guess when the, when the DJ had stopped speaking so you could quickly press play and then guess when it's going to end it before, before you did, or what I, I got to do in the end. I used to get near the end, he might speak, I quickly take it at the, at the, tape thing and just put a pencil in and, and turn it back just a fraction and then put it back in the cassette ready for the next one. I used to get frustrated because I'd, I'd be halfway taping it and mum would come tea's ready or something. Yeah,
0: so I thought it'd be difficult to keep Nan quiet for more than 20 oh, minutes. Oh,
1: gosh, yeah. And you, you, you're, you're trying to tape something and then you could hear me. <laughs> she comes in and makes a noise and I'm, I'm responding back to her for making a noise. So hence you get me as well complaining. So at the end you don't hear much of the song, but... Through 73, I was just... It was one of them doing my own tapes and stuff. So I don't think I brought any singles in 73 that, that I can recall. And albums, again, I wasn't buying albums in 73. So
0: it's only in hindsight you go back and buy stuff. But 73's a great year. Well, it was for me, yeah. Really great, especially if you're a Beatles fan. You've got five solo Beatles albums,
1: all of top quality. But again, that was in retro for me, you see. So, and I think wasn't 73 the best of the Beatles Red and Blue albums come out yeah. as well, didn't yeah. they? So that, again, I got a, I got in cassette, but not till about 77, 78, something like that. So I wasn't getting singles brought for me then, So because um, I probably started doing a paper round or something. <laughs> so, yeah. But no, I mean, it was, it was a great year for music, and it was, you know plenty of good stuff stuff that I liked anyway. I wasn't I wasn't really interested in, in album stuff. It was all i was just total total singles.
0: So you weren't buying stuff but can you remember songs on the radio at the time? Oh yeah, yes. You know, I mean the big the big the big ones with obviously you got
1: Slade, um T Rex was still really big. So it was sweet. All the glam stuff you see. But then you get quite a lot of middle of the road stuff that suddenly pop up and appear. So yeah it, it was a pretty pretty varied Charts. I think looking at charts in '73, I think the UK was very eclectic. You know, you you got from one, then you go and get. I think there was a re-release of of. There's a ghost. Uh, what's that cut song? Like, Ardeen Taylor. There's a ghost in my house or something mm-hmm. which goes. Oh, Monster Mash mm-hmm. and stuff oh, right. like oh, that. Yeah. So, which goes back to early '60s. So that all got re-released. Yeah, and things. So yeah, it was very strange year, but it, it it must have been good for acts because there were so many programmes on TV that promoted pop groups compared to now there's nothing you know a group could go on top of the pops and can virtually guarantee a top 20 place or something but you don't remember Saw A New Morning on the radio no oh gosh no I'll be honest with you after uh, um, Run To Me I don't remember any, any anything to do with the Bee Gees really the next as I said the next thing I brought off them was How Deep Is Your Love so you had that Five year gap for me, so yeah, it was, it was a it was a good year for me for '73 music
0: wise. Going back to the album cover, I wanted to ask you: Do you recognise this picture of the three Bee Gees inside the can?
1: Is it the same photograph, or, or, or similar to
0: Best of the Bee Gees three or two, depending where you? Yeah, it's from the same photo shoot. that That compilation album came out in August. I think it was August, July of '73. Yeah, and something that I didn't realise until you showed me the vinyl, is that the cover is embossed and you've got you, that picture of the Bee Gees is slightly layered behind the yeah. front of the can, which, as you said, you lose that on CD or on streaming services. It, it's a really nice-looking package. So looking
1: at it, is it done so you, you peel the, the uh, top off and you're looking into the can and that's what you see?
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is an old-fashioned style of ring pull. You'd have pulled that back and you've got the uh, Brothers Gibb. Looking up at you, I mean, you probably want to take back your Heinz beans if you, if, if you ever get up to that. <laughs> Again, I've looked on the internet
1: and, and, and it's it's a, it's a 50-50. I think a lot of people like it, other people dismiss it. I mean, I, I think, as I say, I think it's an album you can sort of sit down, open a glass of red wine and and just take in. So I thought for this episode, I've brought a bottle of Coats de Oh, perfect. <laughs> and I thought we'd have this. So I'm hoping we don't get through the whole bottle
0: by the end of the the episode. By the time we get to Method to My Madness, we'll have both descended into (laughs) madness. Yeah. (laughs) Right, cheers. Cheers. Okay, so we'll open up this tin can and look at the songs inside. The first of which is Saw A New Morning. Or sometimes I hear it as "Saw A New Morning. (laughs) All (laughs)
2: of
3: a sudden I saw a new morning. I'm locked up. I wanna be free. Out in the coach, out and over the wall, and my friends are waiting for me.
4: Sixteen people are waiting to get me, hoping to take me outside. I hear the sound of a snuff.
0: this is such an evocative and cinematic opening to the album and, and I think that the Bee Gees strength for storytelling and instantly memorable melodies is just married up so well even in that first opening 12 string or acoustic guitar little melody line to then go into the to the storytelling of the lyrics is just such a perfect blend, I I, I love this opener. Yeah. So because the, the previous two albums, we've had Run to Me and
1: How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. It's, I, I've put on my notes, it's, not, it's, it's like you, I, I really like it, but I just don't think it's in the same league as any other two.
0: No, it's in a different league. Yeah. And I, maybe it's not fair to compare them because you're comparing two piano ballads to yeah. an acoustic ballad. And whereas those Run to Me and uh, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart are about lost love saw a new morning is about something completely different Mm. okay maybe it's not as strong and it certainly wasn't as strong of a single as those other two songs but for this album it works perfectly
4: 16 people are waiting to get me hoping to take
0: Well, I said that it, it wasn't number one. In Hong Kong, it did manage to reach number one. Yeah, let's go back to my previous episode where I was telling you, wasn't I, where where they fade in one part of the world, they pop up in another, don't they? And and so everything that I was saying before about this being an album about America to sell to English audiences and vice versa, well, it didn't attract either of those audiences. Instead, you go to the eastern side of, of the world and, and Hong Kong picks up on it. So yeah. it's incredible how different audiences just pick up on it at different times.
1: And I suppose it goes down to radio play and, and, and what was the competition and bits and pieces. And and because they toured in 72 in, in Japan, it, it's the it's build-up, isn't it, yeah. of everything. So, as you say, Chris, it's a good start to the album. I think the verses have, have a really great hook. And then you get with Solo, Barry, and then
0: Robin, which I just think leads into a fantastic chorus. Yeah. Well, that opening guitar riff... For me, it immediately sets the scene of southwestern America in a Wild West-like setting, presumably. I interpret it as being set in some sort of prison or jailhouse, just from the lyrics. And I think that with the album being recorded in LA and that new location being in sort of the southwestern coast of America, that's immediately fed into the lyrics. We said that it was recorded late 72... I'd like to know when these songs were written. Were were some of these songs hangovers from the year before or the year before that, or were they all recorded there and then? I would have a guess at there and then. I think they had some
1: ideas, but get going over over to the US and getting the you know the engrossed in in in, in your surroundings and stuff. But is it about about some guy facing a firing squad? Because I mean that's not really chart
0: material is it but
1: then again you had it with with,
0: oh gosh brain's gone dead i know which one Uh, gotta get a message to you. yeah that's it so i'll I'll go through my essay that i've written on this song as to what i think it's about and this is purely from my opinion i'm probably completely wrong on this the song tells the story of a convict whose desire is to escape but who is brutally treated by their cellmates 16 people are waiting to get me I read that in one of two ways. Either there are 16 friends of this protagonist who are waiting outside for the protagonist to be released from the prison, or these are 16 cellmates who, you know, want to abuse and want to get into a fight with, with this person. I can't quite tell which angle they're going for. Now, The Wind in My Face and Bones They Are Aching, for me, that represents... Wind in my face being hit in the face and bones there aching, the pain of being yeah. abused. And then the when I heard, first heard the lyric, uh, the snub nose behind me, I thought the snub nose... Is it a gun? Is it... Well, I thought the snub nose was referring to the description of maybe someone who was fighting the protagonist, that it was describing them as having a snub nose. But as you said, it's a snub nose pistol. It's a pistol, yeah. And that completely changed my interpretation of the song. I realised... Oh, suddenly, oh, actually, it might not be about what I think it's about. So, this snub nosed revolver being fired, this could be the start of a riot and the jailers breaking free,
2: mm.
0: or this snub nosed revolver being fired could then be the, the jailers trying to keep the cellmates at bay. So, it's it, I couldn't quite pick what angle they're going for. It was a, the story's open to interpretation, or I'm reading it in too many ways, but either way, I think that the, the key lyric here is. I went along for the ride. All of a sudden, I saw a new morning. I went along for the ride. Saw a new morning to me represents that this person saw a new way of life. They heard the firing of the pistol, took that as a as a note to, this is my time to be free, yeah. to get out. And then they leave. And then that's when we have that really, I, I love it. It's my favorite part of the song. When the lyrics and, and the vocals drop out and we suddenly have this huge expanse of orchestra and strings, and it's a different kind of expanse to what Bill Shepard would do. Yeah. Whereas I think he would layer up the strings and the uh, and the different elements of the so orchestra think it work quite well in five one surround. Then absolutely, it? and yeah. I, and every time I hear it, I can just picture this expanse landscape in 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 a desert in Western America, and these convicts and cellmates escaping and fleeing out. Yeah. People riding on horseback. And I know that we we often think that Barry is the main person for country music, but maybe some of these ideas were Robin's.
1: Yeah, but Morris is quite influenced as well, actually. Oh yeah, he? Railroad with Railroad and stuff. Yeah, and obviously from Cucumber Castle. Between all three of them, they've all, they're all got slight Barry more so than the others, but you know, I mean, Islands in the Stream isn't it? Is is you know a commercial example of it. So have you found any reviews on this one? Because I've I've managed to find one from Record Mirror, which was a UK music mag. And it's got Bee Gees Saw A New Morning, written by all three boys and from the life of a Tin Can album. It has all the usual ingredients of a Bee Gees hit. Fact is, they make these beautiful sounds and you take the mickey air of vibrato work at your own risk. This soars upstairs and upwards. And it's got a staccato touch and it works like a
0: dream. Definite chart cert. Oh dear. <laughs> I completely agree with everything that they said about it though. all of the Every way in which they described the song, all the nuances of it, I, I agree with completely. I found two reviews for this song. The first one was from Cashbox and this was from their March the 3rd, 1973 issue. And like the Record Mirror review that you read, they were really positive. They said... As usual, the accent is on melody and three parts harmony, as Robin, Barry and Morris prove that they're still one of the finest vocal groups around. Immediate chart action and airplay in store for this one. because I think it got it reached the heights of number was it ninety four? <laughs> number
1: ninety four. I mean, this is a new label, isn't it? You know, it must I mean must have been so disappointing to go on the new RSO label and and come in at a, you know, get all these positive reviews. And they know full well that a charting single is going to produce a charting album. Yeah. Virtually. But to come in at number... I mean, this must have been the lowest single release in America, wasn't it, at 94?
0: So would you say Saw A New Morning or Saw to a new uh, <laughs> chart low position? Yeah. Saw A New Chart Fade Away
1: or something. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's quite... Um, You know, from from them two hits in 1970, it it was a steady decline, wasn't it? But looking
0: at Billboard's review, they were also positive. They said the group's distinct vocal blend echoes statements of caution, with what sounds like a symphonic orchestra laying down the foundation, rich, round sound. Do you think it's too sophisticated to be a single? I think so, and you see it with other progressive acts of the period who have these albums which, when you listen to the album as a whole, is great, but it's difficult to pick a single song from that album as a single because it just out of context of the album when it's released out there on its own as a single on a radio station in amongst other, Mm. you know, if this is played on a radio station in amongst glam rock and all those other genres of, of different varieties that you were talking about, this would just get lost in the mix oh, and I forgotten would. about because it, it's 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 a very pretty orchestral acoustic ballad, but it's it's nothing it, it's a strange dichotomy because it's completely different to what the Bee Gees have done before, but equally it's kind of stereotypical Bee Gees. Yeah. Same but different, is Yeah, yeah. I can't quite put my finger on it. It's sonically it is so different to what's Do come you think before.
1: It's their latter version of Odessa. Yeah. Because that was, that was the opener, wasn't it? And it was very cinematic, eight minutes worth of, you know, pure genius orchestration. The whole thing just worked wonderful. But you wouldn't; it would not work as a single, no, Odessa? Um, um, and considering they wanted that to be the first single, didn't they? Mm. Could I have taken an eight-minute version of "Saw a
0: New Morning"? Yes, I think I could. Yeah.
1: Well, there's plenty of space in the album for it, isn't there? Thirty-five minutes, yeah. yeah. And then I suppose then they could have just edited what they thought then would have been a single. But no, I mean, it's definitely a a good start to the album. Have you got anything else you you want
0: to... um... Well, this one, as you said, was composed by Barry, Robin and Morris. This is quite a fascinating album because I'm looking at the track listing and I'm just going to read through the songs and I'm going to read through who composed them. And a trend that you'll see a lot is that we're alternating between BRM and Barry Solo. Saw a new morning, BRM. I don't want to be the one, Barry. South Dakota morning, Barry. Living in Chicago, BRM. While I play, Barry. My life has been a song, BRM. Come home, Johnny Bridey, Barry. Method to my madness, BRM. So there's no solo Morris, there's no solo Robin, there's no Robin and Morris. It's either Barry, or three of them. So do you think it, it was
1: influenced by Barry, this album? Because that's what I put in my notes, actually, that yeah. I think it was... Um... It was heavily
0: influenced from Barry. I'll read through the instrumentation for Sora New Morning. So we've got acoustic guitar, Barry. Electric piano, acoustic guitar and bass, Morris. Lead guitar, Alan Kendall. Drums, Jim Keltner. And then vocals, Three Brothers. And I'd like to know who's playing that acoustic guitar melody. Because we saw with Cucumber Castle, or I think we kind of imagined it as being... Morris and Barry sat on stools playing yeah. the guitars to each other. But well, I think you've got that
1: image, because obviously I think there's clips of them singing... Um, is it Tomorrow Tomorrow or Sun In My Eyes or something? to the two
0: of them. Yeah. And so going to this album, I kind of wonder who's taking on that lead acoustic guitar. So I don't think Robin does anything instrumentally, does he? In um... No, but his the vibrato on his voice, I would go as far to say that the strongest instrument on this album... Is Robin's oh, voice. I've,
1: I've got here, actually, that I think, if we're talking vocal-wise, I think this is one
0: of uh, Robin's best. Yeah, completely. There's songs that we're going to talk about coming up that just take me to a different place Yeah, entirely. And, and when he comes in on this song with 16 people are waiting to get me, there's just something about that that's so endearing. He sort of elevates the song, doesn't he?
1: And, and it's, it works the opposite way around where you get robin doing the verse and then barry comes in with a bridge or something again it 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 shifts the song to another gear
0: yeah and we'll see throughout this album that they're doing different tricks sometimes they are stack harmonizing with each other other times they're alternating there's a couple of examples on this album and a kick in the head where they alternate with each other but they do it at certain moments where you almost don't realize that they've swapped yeah they pick moments of the song that flow so well into each other
4: People are waiting to get me, hoping to take me outside. I hear the sound of the stars close behind me. I'll wait
0: along for the ride. What do you make of the live performances of this song? I've gone through the internet
1: and, and tried to scan them. And I think they sing them really well You know I, I can't remember which performance it was I like to think Are they miming to this Or are they singing it For me it's good to see them sing Songs that you don't Ever see them ever sing, sing. sing again Yeah You see them sing the hits a million times So when they when you come across them singing this song Wow I didn't know this existed Didn't know the single existed So <laughs> know, Nobody else it. did either No <laughs> So to actually see some do it it's it, it, It's good But yeah, it'd be quite nice to get a release with all all these bits and pieces on them, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Live stuff. And even if it's a a DVD of all live performances and things, but I don't think that's ever going to happen.
0: I'd I'd like to know what this song sounded like in an earlier version. What did it sound like without orchestra? But no, it's a really good start to the album. And talking about building on and developing. I say this every episode about favourite Bee Gees moment of all time, but... Can anything really beat the transition from Sora New Morning into I Don't Wanna Be the One as one of the greatest moments in BG's history? And then we get Robin's vocal comes in. I and mean, as we just said about how amazing his vocal is, this is the single greatest if 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 I ever compile a top five or top ten Robin vocals, this would be there.
1: it been quite interesting if they carried on that with the rest of the side
0: as well. So track two leads into side three, three into four. Well I think I think track two I Don't Want To Be The One does lead into track three but we'll, we'll get on yeah. to that
1: yeah and it's amazing isn't it that they did the same thing with the official follow up
0: yeah they did yeah because side one of Mr Natural yeah. kind of goes on to the next
1: to yeah. the next yeah. it's something that they, they they must have enjoyed doing it's a blooming pain when you try and do a compilation of B G songs isn't it? <laughs> you know when I, used the, when I used to try and do it on vinyl it was a nightmare
0: What score have you given? Sora New Morning." I've gone with an eight on this one. Yeah, same, same as me. Yeah.
1: As I say, I prefer the other openers on the on the other two. I do like this, but it's just pers- down to personal choice, isn't it? That but this one, I I, I I'm sticking with the yeah. the eight.
4: It's too late To turn back
0: It really surprised me when I looked at the credits for this album that this is a Barry composition because I would have thought that Robin would have had something to do with it. The way, especially if it's written by Barry, but it's Robin that's that's putting. Well,
1: I think I think it's it's beautiful. I, I think this one is yeah. very heartfelt, and I think for a singer that's not composed the song to put such emotion into it, and not the person that's that's wrote it so much.
0: It makes me think: Did Barry write it with Robin in mind? Did mm-hmm. he write that bit for Robin in his head? How Robin would sing it? Yeah. And then said. Because he would know better than anyone else Mm. the key and the style and the the words, because the the words that are sung are equally as important as the key that they're written in. He knows better than anyone else how to do that for Robin.
1: But yeah, I've got this down as one of my favourites.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it probably is favourite on the album, this one. Easily.
1: we're only on track two but do you think this feels more like a follow up to
0: Trafalgar? You can easily draw a line from Odessa, maybe through Cucumber Castle to Trafalgar and then straight into this. Yeah. Of that style of writing where they just seem in this instance with Life in a Tin Can where they really seem to have matured and I I would regard Life in a Tin Can as a sophisticated album a word that i would use to describe this is sophisticated yeah. and mature and there are uh, there are few other Bee Gees and bgs related albums that i would describe in that way i would also say guilty is a very mature album and still waters yeah so th- i think these are the three albums where the brothers are at the top of their game in terms of songwriting and as you said yeah it's that transition it's going into fr- from from so morning into i don't want to be the one And these lyrics that pick up where Saw a New Morning left off. If we've got all of the convicts and the protagonist escaping from the prison in Saw a New Morning, suddenly then to go into this piano heartfelt ballad where the opening lyric is, it's too late to turn back now, there ain't no space back there. The narrator understands that they've gone too far to look back they're not going back where they came from. Yeah, how did I lose my self-control? And they're only going yeah, to keep yeah. moving forwards. Yeah. And actually that lyric, how did I begin to lose my self-control, makes me wonder, was it that character that fired the snub-nosed revolver? Yeah, was, yeah was could it be, couldn't it? He's think. He's looking back. But then with Barry's vocals coming in for the chorus, that seems to be like the consciousness of the protagonist. It's like their good side of them saying, kind of welcoming them through into this new place wherever they are it, it's it's kind of a, a warm handshake of you've escaped where you are before here you are now
1: I like it when they all come together in the chorus do you think it's all three of them? It's very difficult to distinguish, isn't it? I, well, there's any, You can't hear much of Morris, can you? And I, I'm sure he's there.
0: There are some songs where he definitely is there, but with this one... This
1: one? I'm not, I, I've listened to it a few times, and I'm sure he probably is, but it's just the, the way the vocals
0: blend so well together, isn't it? It becomes one. It's And it's kind of like scaffolding. They All of them complement and structure each other where one singer might not be able to you know, Barry might not be able to hit a certain note or make it as powerful, then Robin and Morris will come in and strengthen yeah. and structure that and vice versa. So, yeah, I'm sure Morris is there, maybe in the low register, maybe in the high register, yeah. maybe in the middle.
1: We talk about this second track in. I wonder why on this album they did they st- just decide to go with eight tracks. When you think, to whom it may concern, had seven on one side.
0: Yeah, 13 overall.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? What, Why they decided. And obviously, we know that there was other tracks done um, for the follow-up. So I'm wondering why they didn't keep the best tracks for this one, along with the best tracks the next one, and release an album in late 73, as they released one
0: in late 72. It seemed a great rush with the three months difference from To Whom It May Concern in October, to then have this album out in January, yeah, three months, what was the rush? Why did they have to put this out so quickly with only eight songs when they could have taken some of the songs from A Kick In The Head? Now, at the point in which this was released, they probably didn't know that A Kick In The Head was going to get cancelled. That's true. Whether the Bee Gees thought that they they were going to have A Kick In The Head released later, so there's no need to overfill the album. Let's just put eight songs that are all of a piece, yeah. four, on one, four on each side... And later in the year, we can scoop up everything else on the follow-up. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's just interesting how it got released. As if they, as you say, as if they wanted to get it out to the public. Were they disappointed with sales from the previous album? I don't. I don't know. Or
0: even further than the songs themselves, it could be. If this is the first album on Stickwood's RSO label, he probably wanted maybe to push he, he wanted to have a first release for that label with the yeah. Bee Gees to, to to show that, to prove that there's life to the Bee Gees beyond to whom Making may Groups have done it before. Various
1: people haven't they? they they've sort of done a sort of an album with with fewer tracks on it, and it's not as if they're all long tracks either, is it? No, no. it's not as if you've only got eight tracks because obviously you can
0: only fit four tracks on one side of the vinyl. There's a couple that are quite long, but majority the album runs to 35 minutes. I always argue that the best running length for an album, for a single album, is 40 minutes. Yeah, so you're only you're only one
1: track away, aren't you, from that really? So yeah, but no, it's just quite interesting how they, what made them decide to go down that
3: route.
0: with the chorus of I don't want to be the one I think the main hook of it is when Barry says you know as well as I that you're my only friend and I think that's one of those choruses that we see quite a few times during this period where if you were to extract that chorus and put it to a different song with maybe a more commercial verse or just to a more commercial song that chorus in and of itself could really be something. Do you think I know it's always hindsight and
1: we always talk about this, do you think it's a hint of what's to come? In what way? This sort of style of the vocal. Well, I mean, the way, could you imagine Barry falsetto singing this? You know, I don't know whether, whether you know, people sort of say, oh, this sounds like it could be leading up to main course, or this reminds me of the past. You know, I've listened to all the album, and I think this one tends to have a hint of possibly... You know the uh, love so not love so right or the, that's the way the way it was or, or oh yeah yeah that sort of that that's sort it. of stuff
0: yeah maybe I
1: can yeah and if you want to do the opposite way around, I could I could imagine rest your troubles put on this album yeah going back
0: yeah it's just interesting
1: when you play around with with ideas and thoughts but um, two tracks in and I think it's we're fine at the moment with that Chris and I know obviously you really like this one I mean how would you score
0: this one nine. I've gone with a nine as well. And can you see the concept? Are you, are you starting it's to understand real, what it is? Not really. Someone I th- escaping from prison. I've got that bit. Going out into the open world, they found a friend in somebody. Yeah. And
1: then the next song, which we'll talk about, is uh, um, South Dakota Morning. So have you man- found a link from that one, then? From the others to that one?
0: South Dakota Morning seems to be about something completely different.
1: There's a lyric, isn't it? The eagle flies on a South Dakota morning and I don't see my eagle anymore. Mm. Now, stranger, I must kill you. You must survive, but will you? I just may beat you down, but will it even up the score? I think I saw the eagle just once more. The
3: sun shines down on a South Dakota morning I can see their faces in my eyes. I wish they were behind me. My enemy can find me. If only to remind me that I'm really not alone. All oh, South Dakota mornings, I.
0: Part of me was trying to see how this related to that concept that we discussed with the first two songs. But looking deeper into the lyrics and doing some research, this song is a tribute to the Black Hills flooding. I've not not heard that. This was a horrific tragedy that occurred in June of 1972. There was heavy rainfall around the Black Hills of South Dakota, and around 240 people lost their lives after creeks and dams overspilled and flooded the, the town area and then looking at the lyrics it does come across as this is barry reflecting upon that the rain comes down on a south dakota morning and i can see the sadness in my town so let it be my pillow for underneath your willow want to go back to you though you're nothing but a town on the south dakota grass i lay me down Mm. Interesting perspective i kind of see this as being from the perspective of, a, of an eagle But looking down looking down upon this town that it once used to see as being lively and full of you know full of life and a township is now this wrecked and abandoned place so so immediately i kind of at this point i'm immediately disjointed from the concept of the first two songs and ins- what instead what we have is this incredibly poignant and pretty barry ballad yeah I'm with you, so that's why that's why I always just sort of dismiss the
1: concept out idea, but that's why I think you can read into it, can't you? There's
0: no real link unless you're looking for you know a hidden link. The one link I can find is that I would say this is I can bring love part two this one, yeah, so there's the link back to that song, yeah, beautiful melody, subdued arrangement, I've put beautiful melody. And, it, and it's another Barry
1: composition, isn't it? And I just think it, it's a mature sort of country ballad. It's very sort of simplistic. Yeah. Sometimes talk about the sound, but I, whether because there's only eight tracks on it, I, I think the actual CD quality is pretty good on this. Whereas you got the previous album was quite compressed, obviously, because of the 13 tracks. This one, I, it, it, it seems pretty good, actually.
0: The sparser arrangements coupled with the 35-minute running time, it does sound good.
1: And I don't know whether... Would that be anything to do with going to a different studio? Yes, having
0: Johnny Pate on board as well. Yeah. All of that helps, which is why, going back to that initial quotation that I read out about Barry saying how everyone who's heard this album says how good it sounds, well, yeah, I can imagine they probably thought it sounded brilliant in comparison to... To Whom It May Concern didn't have a bad sound, but they had a bit of a muddy... Whereas right, this one, one
1: it, it's sort of fret, it's open, isn't yeah. it?
0: it? It's open. I think I tell
1: you what I do think is brilliant is the harmonica playing on this. It really gives you the feel of what Barry was trying to, to capture on the song.
3: Think I saw
0: the and I don't know whether you've picked up on it, but. Going across all of these songs on this album, it seems like every song picks a different authentic American instrument. No, I hadn't. So on this song we've got the harmonica. Going over to Come Home Johnny Bridey, that has steel guitar, which is quite a traditional American instrument. We then have Harmonica again on My Life has Been a Song, and then a 12-string on While I Play. There's a flute on living in Chicago. So all of these quite traditional Mm. American instruments are being used. And again, I think that's Johnny Pate's bringing them in. And, and, And that's what helps to give, you know, this is life in a tin can. This is life inside America. I know that you're not always so keen on harmonicas being used excessively. No, I'm not.
1: No. I think instruments work, you know, different instruments work well in isolation. Yeah. But I, I couldn't listen to a, every track with a harmonica it, it. It'd pull my hair out. Goodbye, blue sky. Yeah. I mean, you, you couldn't, could you? You know, because you get this one-off track, it, or couple, but spaced out, it, it works so well, but it, it, it conjures up an image in, inside you, doesn't it, of what they're singing about
0: as well. And harmonicas are quite mournful-sounding instruments. Mm. It's kind of like if Robin's voice was an instrument, it would be a harmonica. Yeah, that's true. And, and so... Yeah. It, Whereas maybe he might have had a vocal on this track, it's kind of been swapped out for the harmonica, which represents that same melancholy with the nature of what the song is about, is, is what it is, is the message that it yeah. puts across. The rain comes down on the south, the morning. Now, we've said about Barry disregarding this album. But this song, out of all eight of them, I think is the one that stuck with him and certainly stuck with Linda because he said quite a few times recently how if he's going to do a Greenfields 2, this is one that she keeps telling him he needs to revisit, that she really loves this song and through her, he's rediscovered it. I can see why she loves it so much.
1: Yeah. But it's good, isn't it, that you're getting somebody within the family that that's picking up on a song that's, that Barry doesn't ever talk about. Yeah. So we ought to send her a copy of Kick in the Head then. <laughs> so for me on this
0: one, I'm going with a, probably a seven. Seven, yeah, I've, same same as you, we've done same scores three yeah. in a row. Now, just going back quickly, Saw a New Morning didn't perform particularly well as a single, bit of an understatement. Do you think South Dakota Morning would have been a better first single?
1: No, not really.
0: Oh, okay. No,
1: I don't, I don't. I think it would have had exactly the same fate. I think it's too limited, especially in the UK. I don't know whether... Right. No. I don't know. I just see this one as being the other really commercial one on this album. Do you? No, I, I think there's another one I think would be more commercial. Okay. Unfortunately, I've got to say, I don't. I, I think this is a good album track and I just don't see it in, in the charts. It would just be lost. hmm i think it might perform well it probably particularly in the us where they've got a lot of individual charts haven't they for you know rhythm and blues soul country you know in the country charts it could probably do really well but um, i don't i don't i I don't see any home for it in the uk so now we come to which already the last track on side one time absolutely
0: flies by (laughs) we're living in chicago
3: If you're happy marching forward in your band Holding hands together I will understand In my life I'm together on my own With my own private eggshell and my phone
4: if your mind is in the darkness Could you know If it suits you to be fast Or far too slow Will you
1: show So we come now to, I think, is it the longest track on the album? Is it about five and a half minutes, this one?
0: Yeah, five minutes, 39 seconds.
1: I put on my notes, Chris, this one, I found it quite stripped back And it's sort of dominated by the acoustic guitar.
0: We reached track four here and this is where the album dips a little bit for me. And for the next song after this, I I think the album takes a bit of a a dip in the middle. And 5 minutes 39, there are other songs in this album that deserve that running time. I find that it's got unusual lyrics with my own private eggshell and my phone. What does that mean? I've, I've looked into the lyrics, I've tried to think, what is he, ref- what, is, what is Barry referring to here? Well, Barry, BRM, it's a BRM song. I've no, do you know what, Chris? I've no, no idea at
1: all. Can you see a link then with the story in this song? Because there is a couple of lines. And as soon as you discover where you're going, can I walk along the way, along the way? I'm lonesome and I need somebody knowing just a few nice words to get me through the day.
0: Maybe if this is the same protagonist that was in the first song, they've what, now come across Chicago. Wherever Saw A New Morning was set, is South Dakota between that location and Chicago? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe it's a journey from one place to the next. You know, I'm lonesome,
1: needs somebody knowing. And then the next while I play is, got, I will take my leave. I've got to move on time. I play inside your soul. I made you sing along. I will return to find out if the melody was wrong.
0: Because in I Don't Want to Be the One, he says, you know as well as I that you're my only friend. I think this is there's just one person here and this is their consciousness talking to themselves.
3: If you're living in Chicago, it's your home. If you're living in Chicago,
1: I don't know whether you've seen on YouTube there's a version of them singing this on the Johnny Carson show, which yes. is about three and a half minutes. And that's what I like about I've said for quite a while that it, it's just really nice just to hear them on acoustic guitar and you really get the feel of the song. It's just a nice
0: version, isn't it? Three is it three and three and a half minutes or something like yeah. that? But it's that moment when it gets to the chorus, all three of them simultaneously come forward for the chorus. Well, it's that Bee Gees magic of the yeah. blend of all three of them suddenly comes forward, and it 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 made me appreciate the song more than the studio version. But then I'm I'm kind of thinking about the studio version, and it is a a nice little tune, and and it's got a really wistful flute instrumental section, and and I like the melodramatic opening mm. to the song as well. I think that there's a theme of melodrama through this album, that that opening continues with. So so yeah, it's I'm I'm kind of in two minds about this this song. I think if it had been three and a half minutes on the album, I'd like it more. Yeah, yeah. We've gone through now all these albums
1: from '67, and we'd say we'd swap this, do that, and one thing another. I think I can say we've come now to an album where I honestly can't say I would change the order of any of these four tracks.
0: They blend so well together. Yeah, I find this a really easy listening album. I'll put it on, and because it's only 35 minutes, I can, you know, it's, it's easy to digest. But the songs flow so well into each other, even if not intentional, that you know, one minute I'm listening to Saw A New Morning, and before I know it, I'm onto to the middle of side two. But I can see why this album divides people. As you say, it's a very mature album.
1: And if you're used to the quirky Robin lyrics, and and... Paper mache. Yeah, and all those different things, this is a step backwards, but... In hindsight, it, it's like a natural flow. You know, they need, they've been with Bill Shepherd for six years. They just felt they needed a change. And with all
0: changes, you, you think some things are going to work, some things are not going to work. So, And this is the album that, because Bill Shepherd isn't there, you can look at this album as an example of, if the Bee Gees didn't meet with Bill Shepherd, would this have been what their albums would have sounded like earlier on? it's fascinating to hear a more stripped back and sophisticated and just different sounding yeah. to what we've heard before yeah but
1: it is an album i think as we we've said that you listen to it and it's not that memorable you you need a good five or six listens to it to really appreciate it and i just think it, it's good to have in the canon and it's a it's a sort of a lost record, but it, 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 that's why I, quite, I enjoy the, the 70 to 74 period, because it's their probably least commercial,
0: but it's got some of their most interesting songs mm. of their career in it. And on every album, there's always a song that you'll have forgotten about, yeah. or there'll just be a, an entire album that you've forgotten about, yeah. be it a released or unreleased album. Yeah, I think we said, didn't we, with with, uh, Two Years On, before going through that album,
1: there's not many songs that you can think, oh, I know what that sounds like. This would be the same if you didn't, you know, give it its chance to, to come through and everything. With that in mind, what score are you going to go with on this one? Because I'm going with a six. Okay, five for me. Right, so we flip it over then. And while I turn over, it's while I play it.
3: Baby, you forgot you're living. Someone covered up your eyes. In my wheelie's diamond. What I love them my wise There's gonna be some confusion. And there's gonna be a day. You'll raise your eyes and you look to the skies and you'll pray.
0: This is the first point on the album in which the sequencing of the track list and also the Bee Gees' choice of musical style across this album, becomes an issue for me. I think there's too little to differentiate this from the songs that surround it. And as a result, While I Play is the song that I always forget. It's the least memorable for me. Is it it a Barry, just a Barry solo, this one? Yeah. Yeah. And I I always kind of in my head get confused between this and Living in Chicago. The only thing that really differentiates them is the violin on While I Play compared to the flutes on Living in Chicago.
1: I think for me, it's a track where Barry's matured this this sort of sound from, you know, originally we had the country sound of I Kiss Your Memory, which is not high on my (laughs) list of songs, and he's matured that into this sort of song. For me, it's like an extension of something from The Kids No Good. Yeah, yeah, I've got that in my notes as well. So I can definitely see a progression in this one.
0: And I think he sings this one in his natural voice as well. Apart from a slight American accent, which he gives to a lot of the songs on this, yeah. this album. Yeah, the style of While I Play, I think it's kind of like what the Bee Gees favoured during this period.
1: And this one, out of all these tracks, I think improves with listens. The best part for me is the chorus. I think that is, that is quite a catchy chorus. Especially the bit where he goes, there's gonna be some confusion. And when it's backed with yeah. that violin sound,
0: it yeah. does give it that that bounciness. There's gonna be some
3: confusion. And there's gonna...
1: This is just a personal choice. I would prefer the arrangement to be less country-fied. Okay. it's that one country song too many? Yeah. I think, you know, that bit, it's going to be some confusion. Could have really developed into something. You know, it could have rocked it up a bit
0: more, as you say, to give it a bit of a harder edge to it. When he sings while I play, I mean, that's just two notes, three notes. Yeah, It's not the most inspiring. He could have picked any other sort of phrase to have put there, and in the end you you've got this there's going to be some confusion there's going to be some day while i play it is sort of mm. a bit underwhelming
3: i will take my leave
0: i find that with any artist who's released multiple albums there's always one song on an album that is like a precursor to what's going to come next and another song that's kind of like a reflection of what's come before And with To Whom It May Concern, in hindsight, I would have really hoped that something like Sweet Song of Summer would have been that precursor of things to come. And I kind of think it's a shame that they didn't take on something like the Moog synthesizer into this album. Because what would this album have sounded like if they'd have swapped the violin for a synthesizer? Just to give it a bit more of an electronic, contemporary sound? That's what would have differentiated while I play... ...from the other songs... ...I think that would have enthused Morris... ...but I'm not sure about Robin... ...and it's with songs like While I Play... ...that I kind of take sides with Stigwood, ...and I understand why he cancelled the next album... Yeah, ...I can just picture him in his office... ...excited because he's got the first... ...RSO label, Bee Gees album... ...puts it on the record player... ...and then he gets to side two... ...and he's probably hoping for a bit more... ...and he's greeted with this... ...and I'm looking at the, the sequencing... I don't think While I Play was the best song to open up side two with. I think if you'd have swapped it with Come Home Johnny Bridey... Yeah. ...that would have been better because that's a bit more of an uplifting, bouncy song to open up a side with. And then gradually get slower and slower. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was just a thought that came to me that they could have... If they were going to pick up anything from To Whom It May Concern, maybe that synthesizer would have been a good idea. But then looking ahead, there is synthesizer work on A Kick In The Head, so... It wasn't entirely abandoned. It could have been what the producer wanted from them as
1: well. I suppose if you want to go with a certain feel for an album, as you mentioned earlier, these are the type of music and musicians we're going to use and stuff. And then did Barry write to order on some of these things? You know, thinking, oh, we're going to be working with these musicians. We're going to be using harmonica and whatever. And would he write something to
0: complement? I don't know. Yeah, that goes back to his Australian days of... Yeah, writing to order. Yeah, how many surfing songs do you want to um, <laughs> to write and stuff? Good on Barry. He'll give them four songs that are probably better than anything else that yeah. they've ever recorded. But yeah, yeah.
1: So it's it's quite interesting, isn't it, without fully knowing why they decided to write these th- these songs. With this one, I'm I'm going again with a six. I've gone with a second five. Well, hopefully it'll all change for the next one because we're now coming up to
4: my favourite.
1: Well, for me, this this is the lost classic of the album. It's what I like about the Bee Gees. I like I love about Robin's voice and the interplay between the two brothers. And it's just one of my favourite ballads. It's got perhaps the best lyrics on the album. I mean, I just think it's it's magical, especially when
0: Barry kicks in with a chorus stroke bridge. Brilliant. This is an interesting and introspective song. And I'm kind of surprised that this is in the middle of side two. To me, My Life Has Been a Song screams album closer. It's kind of got that thing to it of... We see this with some different artists over the years. You get someone like... I'll take an example of um, Billy Joel has... He does it a lot where the last song on the album is always kind of like his closer in case he never releases another album. So you'll get songs like Where's the Orchestra or Famous Last Words, which are very much final songs. And with My Life Has Been a Song, it's... The Bee Gees, I think, reflecting on their own career as songwriters. And so to me, that that kind of feels like, yeah, this should be at the end of the album. The one thing on this one, I think Morris plays brilliant on the piano
1: on this one. I'm sure it's him, isn't it? Yes. It plays yeah. yeah. No, it is wonderful.
2: Yeah,
0: it's got a good reverb to it yeah. when, he, when he strikes the chords. And, the, and there's the second appearance of the harmonica on this song, which, again, is used really effectively. It's not overblown. It doesn't take away. It, it just it adds a nice layer
1: and i've got to say i think robin's vocals are amazing on this yeah
0: it just brings genuine emotion to it and some wonderful poetic lyrics my favorite on here is every sound in my head that- every word that i said is like a melody yeah that is how i imagine the three brothers must see the world they just see the world as having you know they they walk and wherever they walk they see melodies all around them and they're just plucking these melodies from the air and stringing them together into songs and Every sound in my head, every word that I said is like a melody. I mean,
1: when I did my compilations that I used to make, this was always on it. I always put this one on. I think this was the B-side, wasn't it, to "Saw A New Morning? And I always preferred this one. Is this the song that you would have picked as the A-side? I would have picked this as the A-side, but that's not saying it's a better choice as a single, but it's personal preference is my my favourite. Every sound in
3: my head, every word that I've said is like a melody, melody, melody. No little person like me could ever change. Every sound in the streets, all the cold and the heat, is like a symphony, symphony, symphony,
2: which has never before
1: been rearranged. I mean, I've read on the internet where um, somebody said that the verses sound more or less like one of Procol Haram's slower efforts. While Barry's part, with all the major seven chords, is very Gilbert O'Sullivan. So I listened to that. And actually, talking to Gilbert O'Sullivan, I just brought his new album. It's brilliant. One of his best. So if anybody hasn't heard it, it's called Driven. Go and give it a listen. So yeah, I mean, he's 75 and just produced one of his best albums of his career. So there is hope for all these people, isn't there? To you're not dead and buried at a certain age. So talking to Gilbert O'Sullivan, I, I found a quote from Robin. This must have been when um Saw New Morning didn't perform quite what he must have thought because he's he's got take Gilbert O'Sullivan for example. His record gets to the top of the American charts and it hits the front page of just about every paper. We had consecutive number ones and not a word is written about it. People in England don't value their art. I mean there's no other group like us. We are always original and never use other people's material. People should value it, but they don't because they're spoiled. So yeah. well, somebody must have caught him on a, a not a good day, do they? And then he goes on to say, we're pop stars and now we're content. All we want now is for people to
0: realise that our music is lastingly progressive. I think lastingly progressive is a good description of yeah. Life in a Tin Can. It's an album that over time progresses as an album. It, it, it improves with, it, with every listen. No, yeah, I think so, and I don't think what he was saying there was—it wasn't a slight against Gilbert O'Sullivan. It's not him.
1: No, no, it was—it was a fact, I think. But then, in seventy-two, seventy-three, Gilbert was having done Correct. alone again, naturally, and all that sort of stuff, which were hits in the UK and America. Hence, why the headlines. Whereas the ones Robin's referring to, I assume, of "Hair to Men a Broken Heart" and "Lonely Days" were only hits in the U. Well, mainly hits in the in the US and not the UK
2: yeah.
1: but yeah it's, it's quite interesting when you look back on these old clips of interviews and stuff but yeah must have quite made a bit of an edgy day that one Well, as I say, this is
0: my favourite of the album, so I'm go- I'm going with a nine. Not as high as you. I've given it a seven, but you've um you've you've definitely encouraged me to give it another listen with different ears. I do like the way that this goes out with the harmonica. It just drops out from the vocals, goes to harmonica, and it kind of leads again into Come Home Johnny Bridey. One One flows into the other really yeah. well. And I said about I was surprised this wasn't the album closer. Well, I think the album Closer that they went with was the right choice. But before that, we have Come Home, Johnny Bridie.
3: So I left the only folks I know I was 15 then and hardly grew When they found me in the swamp, face down in the mud Couldn't get back and I couldn't go far Said to myself, stay right where you are Done found yourself from far, far Everybody said, kid's no good
1: Now for me, you, you mentioned single. I, I think this is the most commercial, uplifting track on the album. It's got a, would you say, sing-along chorus? Country inspired. Yep. This is one of
0: those songs on the album. I would love to have heard the demo of it. I think the demo of this song would sound very similar to... Kids No Good Kids Sir. No Good. Did you recognise the lyric?
1: Yeah, I think you mentioned it before, wasn't it? The,
0: yeah. Uh, um, Everybody says the kid's no good. It's not a surprise because I think that this song, Come Home Johnny Bridey, typifies Barry more than any other song. and And even in the way that this song makes use of steel guitar... And steel guitars, I don't know if you know about them, but they are tuned to an open D, which is a typical Hawaiian uh, slack key guitar tuning. All right, yeah. Now, when Barry first learnt guitar, I think aged nine or ten, he, he was taught guitar and he learnt guitar in Hawaiian slack key tuning. Oh, okay. And I think he continued to play and maybe even still plays in that tuning. I don't know what the what the specific differences are other than different um, finger shapes for the chords and I think you get a different resonance and I think that him playing in that tuning and then with Morris playing in I think in in a standard EAD, GBE tuning that's what gives that really beautiful, rich Bee Gees sound when you've got the two of them with their guitars they've kind of got those contrasting chords that they're playing they're both probably playing well they are saying they're they're playing the same chords as each other but in different variations on the guitar neck oh i see so it gives it a different resonance is it a coincidence that on the song that's a barry solo song that is a very typical barry solo song that we have a guitar that's tuned to the way that barry plays Mm. I think it's, this is the most commercial
1: track on the album. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, actually. Doesn't it stay it's welcome either, does it? So it's perfect length for a single. Three minutes 50, so yeah. Yeah, yeah perfect yeah, length. It's a little bit if you wanted to, but you've got the ideal single. And I think it would have been a good track to have led with for, for a new album, you know, a new uh, label. We're going to start with something
0: slightly different, but it wouldn't reflect the album really, I suppose. And I don't think that, Music magazines and critics would have been as favourable in advance of something like Come Home Johnny Bridey as, say, the more sophisticated Saw A New Morning. But again, going back to what I said about, you know, typical Barry trademarks, this song tells the story of the underdog, the title character, Johnny Bridey. You know, this person who's been who needs to prove his innocence, who everyone else thinks is guilty. Everyone else thinks that this kid is no good. And we've seen that kind of story before in Barry's music. We heard it with, with Marley Putt Drive. That tells the story of the tired father who has to look after their family. Mm-hmm. Clyde O'Reilly. You've got the farmer who's trying to protect his son from the sheriff's arm of justice. And that kind of got me thinking, okay, so is Johnny Bridie the the main character of the whole album? That person who was in prison in Saw Morning, is that Johnny Bridie who was serving their time? and has now been released, and with this song, their innocence is being proven, because you've got, its to me it sounds like members of the family and friends in the neighbourhood who are saying, we're all wrong about you, he was convicted of the killing. Oh right, yeah. So yeah, that kind of made me think, oh right, that's interesting, maybe this is the most crucial song on the album.
1: Yeah, it links everything all together. Yeah,
0: this is actually, going through this podcast, I've discovered how much of a concept album this might be. I've got a question mark with my head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether I've got fog
1: on my eyes or the wine's getting to me, but um, I'm going to have to really listen to this, <laughs> I
3: think. no good. Yeah, I,
0: there's not much else I can say about this one. We've both just said about how this kind of goes back to typical Barry and Kids No Good, etc. But this is kind of the last of this type of song that we ever see. We don't ever see Barry revisit this Stop. kind of music, apart from, say, Islands in the Stream. So
1: could this one fit onto Greenfields too? Yeah,
0: I would like to see it there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'd, I'd like to see maybe a slower version, although that might make the song lose its charm. You'd, yeah, probably, you'd, say. you'd probably say I mean, I would like him not to do a
1: duet one, just solely him.
0: Despite all of that, I've given Come Home, Johnny Bridey a six.
1: Yeah, I I was thinking
0: of six.
1: I think because it's, it's commercial and upbeat... I'm tending to go for a seven, just because it, it's different. It's got a slight... I mean, on a normal album, I would... I know it's sounds City, probably a six. But on this album, I think I'm going to give it a seven. The fact of it being the most commercial song on the
0: album. Well, that then leads us on to... A final track, isn't it? final track of the album already. Method to My Madness. I played the game
4: Still it's not worth it like a woman in the rain, I close my eyes among the shell
3: and know myself.
0: This is another tremendous album closer that continues in a long line of amazing album closes by the Bee Gees. What do you think to Robin's vocals on
1: this? Because I, I just think there's one part where he feels like he's straining, but it just adds so much emotion to the song. I just think as, his vocals on this album are fantastic. Is this a BRM? Yeah, this yeah, is a so BRM. So I
0: think he, he adds something in in the writing on this one. Yeah, like I Don't Want To Be The One, this is up there for the other Great Robin vocal on this album. Absolutely sublime. My favourite line of of the song, and maybe one of my favourite lines of the whole album, when they say, like a woman in the rain. It's an unusual song, really, looking at it, because there's a lack of distinction between what is the verse and what is the chorus. It's such a powerful lyric. And I feel like, again, I mentioned it with another song previously, but you could extract that that, that line. You could extract it from this song, put it to a different song, maybe a more commercial song. And that could have really been, you know, a, a really commercial song there, maybe later on in the 70s or in the 80s.
1: They pull these out of thin air, though don't
0: they oh, they do and and it's what they said in my life has been a song, all the sounds in my head, are yeah. like a melody, you know it's that it's again well, there they're just... all
1: the time, aren't they and even on the unreleased stuff there's always a there's always a a note or a line, you think, wow, why have you why has that not been put somewhere else? Yeah, it's left unreleased because there must be a reason why you left it unreleased, but there must have been a part of that song you we found it like when you listen to bootlegs of I don't know like john lennon and and you know where songs that he wrote he wrote about four songs that eventually evolved into like i'm stepping out yeah i'm stepping out and and free as a bird yeah and one i i think yeah there's about three or four songs that he took bits from each one to get the final product but you don't really see that with the Bee Gees, do you no you know it, it's part of a song right we, we we're not happy with that put it to one side let's start something fresh I suppose in later years we found it where Robin, in the late 2000s, where he, he, he went back into his... Avalanche. ...Sing Stony Sisters with Avalanche. He pulled out that track, didn't he, from, from the Australian years.
0: I Am The World. I Am The
1: World. That's it. You've got it. So he was obviously looking back for inspiration, or was it his son that was playing the yes. early stuff and said, Dad, what about redoing this or something?
0: It's like a sister song to My Life Has Been a Song. These two are kind of two of a piece. They've got a very similar piano sound to them, that reverbed electric piano sound. They've got very similar powerful choruses and they both have a sense of finality to them. My only criticism with it really is that the song seems to fade and end before it really finds its stride. How long is this one? It's three minutes ten. Yeah, it's, it it's really short take 2 minutes off living in chicago and give them to this it could have done with a, another bridge it could have just gone somewhere else which maybe bill shepherd would have seen that or in a in in a different time they would have developed this to be something else yeah i think it it really really could have done something and it could have ended in the same soaring vocals as say walking back to waterloo which just yeah. really had that power to it that this Kind of lacks it, it almost gets there, but just doesn't quite hit the mark. But overall, I, I it's it's another highlight on the album to me. Whenever I listen to it, it it's one of those goosebump songs. And there's a couple of tracks on
1: there, isn't it? That that, that that happens, yeah, they're well worth discovering, especially as I say, this this 1774 period. There's so many good songs, you think what a fabulous
0: compilation you could make between 1774, yeah, even of just unreleased songs in and of itself that could make that could still be just as good of a compilation as the release stuff
1: yeah you could fill a, a best of but you know 70 to 74 I mean I don't, I don't know why they couldn't sort of release that one and see how well the public reacted to it as to whether they went forward and re-released all the albums you know as a, as a precursor to them
0: when you got the Tales of the Brothers Gibber box set in the 1990s I know that it was at disc 2 was Majorly, nineteen seventy to seventy four. Yeah, am I right? I and mean, there
1: was quite a few tracks I had never heard of. Of those four discs, which did you play the most? Actually, it might have been disc two. It was a period that I wasn't that familiar with. Yeah. So yeah, it, I, I probably went for disc two and disc four. I played quite a bit, and obviously, was, on disc four, you had all that live stuff at the end, which really could have been left off, and they could have put more tracks from the mid. Because uh, um, that's quite got an unusual track selection. I think it did vary that track disc four in America to the UK. Did it miss off the ESP demo? I think it did, and then I think there was a couple of Barry tracks. I think it might have might have missed off. I'll have to have a look into it. But I did read, remember reading at the time that it had a different track listing. <laughs> We're going to end this
0: album on high, aren't we? I'm going to go with an eight on this. Same for me. As I said before, it needed that little bit something else, but it, it, it's almost there.
1: Well, for you, it just needs just to be there a bit longer. Yeah.
0: So after the album was done in,
1: or released in January, the Bee Gees decided to go and do a one-off concert in the UK, which was in February. For some strange reason, they, they only did the one date, which was quite strange, really, to, to promote an album. I looked online and the set list that I can see is they start off with to love somebody, really and sincerely, lay it on me, saw a new morning, a new track, I can't see nobody, Uh words, morning of my life, they bring back don't forget to remember, and then Odessa, wouldn't I be someone, I started a joke, my world, alive, run to me, how can you mend a broken heart, I've got to get a message to you and Massachusetts and finishing off with Lonely Days. So only two, two two new songs. Two new songs, yeah. Considering they were promoting the album. I did find a quote actually from, from Barry regarding why they, why they only did the one date. And basically it's down to finance, he says. Most people in England have no conception at all of how expensive it is for a band to tour in the UK. If the whole thing is going to be done properly, there's hardly any way the group can make any money. By the time you've paid for expenses, the promoter, and other in-betweeners, you're left with nothing. So that goes down to me. Because on this album they simplified, it, or it seems a little bit more stripped back, why didn't they go and tour in the UK as, a, as just a band, no orchestra? Give it a bit of a more band feel. I know the album... Is a more sophisticated and probably warrants an orchestra, but it it would have been nice, I think, to, you know, like you see an ordinary band
0: with, just go out and give it some. And like when we watched the clip from Johnny Carson where it's just them three with no backing. Yeah, and then I found a
1: couple of clips which that I I think are brilliant. They they actually showcase Barry singing how they could rock out without an orchestra. Yeah, I think one of them is is it. Um, Hey Jude? Yes. <laughs>
0: Going on from Hey Jude with The Beatles Connection, on the 10th of August 1973, the Bee Gees were the hosts of the British rock revival and they played alongside other Manchester-based or Manchester-born Oh, artists. that would probably be Herman's
1: Hermits then, Chris, I should think. Yeah. Because they were they were really big in the sort of 64, 65, mm-hmm. which is obviously ties in with the British invasion.
0: Which goes back to what I said at the beginning of the episode about the movement in 72, 73 of... British music suddenly becoming very popular again yeah. in America.
1: I think it seems to be every sort of 10 years because you got you had in 82, Culture Club, Duran Duran, Soft Cell, they were all doing really well in America. You used to get a rundown of the American charts. Yeah. And that, definitely that mid to early part of the 80s was full of UK stuff. If I
3: fell in love with you, would you promise to be true? And help me understand that I've been in love before And I've found this love before more
0: than just holding hands If I did my During this British rock revival show, they did a medley of If I Fell... I need you I'll be back and she loves you and it's a fantastic medley Barry's on acoustic guitar I don't know if Morris and Robin are on any instrumentation okay probably it's just Barry then yeah sometimes you get these concerts where if it's,
1: there's a lot of artists to keep it flowing they just they probably just come on
0: while they're setting something up or vice versa but but yeah. It, but it clearly shows that the Beatles and 60s music was still weighing in heavy on the Bee Gees minds they, they're wanting to reflect back on it. And from that set list that you went through before, from 73, they only played two new songs. Are there any other songs from Tin Can that you could have seen them? Come Home Johnny, I could imagine doing that one.
1: I mean, to be honest with you, if they can do Saw A New Morning and Living In Chicago, there's no reason why they couldn't have played any of them. They could have done a little acoustic set in the middle of the concert and and gone through three or four of them. Yeah. But I, I just think that obviously there's we discussed it because they like taking a big orchestra around with them. They, they try and fit. They've obviously wanted to utilise that as much as possible. So I thought for this, Chris, what we'd do, we'd, we'd dig back from 1970, 71. And I'd, I tried to find as many as I could do um, of songs that were released by other artists, but not by the Bee Gees. Or, you know, there was no Bee Gees version. The first one I've, I've gone with is a German singer. And she's called excuse me pronunciation Capture epstein And she covers Barry's unreleased song Called Peace In My Mind In German It is called Frieden in Me. Now please excuse again I'm not 100% sure How, how you pronounce it But when you translate that in, Back into English It's called Peace In Me And it's definitely got A Eurovision feel to it And also Funny enough This was also One of Bill Shepard's arrangements
2: Frieden.
1: I know it's not your cup of tea and it's, I suppose, it, it, it's a thing of its time, so... What stuck out to me was just how good of a melody Barry's written. Well, this is what I mean, you see, about when, when other people interpretate the song. It, its
0: You can you can hear it, can't you? Yeah, it made me really appreciate that when we looked at the episode during The Kid's No Good, I probably dismissed it, but hearing it now and probably Bill Shepard's given it a, a fuller arrangement, yeah, it stood out to me just how good of a song it, it actually is Yeah, and I wonder whether Barry was aware that this cover was being made of his song well this, this is what makes me
1: think because there, there's one or two others in similar vein to this I, I wonder whether it's something to do with the copyrights and all the people that look after Barry's songs or who goes around promoting and says you know Barry's not going to release this you know or unless people have come up to them I don't know who, who, how it would
0: work really it's interesting how these songs that we're looking at, majority of them are the unreleased songs, or the mm. songs from unreleased albums that are being given to these relatively minor, uh, obscure artists. And they're sung in their in their own... Native language. Native language, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know whether Barry would have known that these songs were being covered or if the connection just came through these artists, well, this artist in particular was putting in contact with Bill Shepard... And Shepherd may have remembered these songs from Barry. Yeah.
1: She could have been a session singer in the UK or something. I don't know. Yeah, or, or worked in the studios. Sometimes Bill Shepherd, Because we've noticed even right from 67, a lot of these unreleased songs were given to artists that relatively, as you say, minor artists. Like 69, you had that Japanese boy band. Then you also had the version of Maypole Muse. As we quickly skip over. <laughs> okay, and the next one, Chris, I've got is an artist. He, he covered three BG songs. His name's Peter Maffei. Again, I believe he's German. And he covered When Do I from Trafalgar. But then interestingly enough, he goes and covers If I Were the Sky, the unreleased one from it Trafalgar Sessions. Yeah. And Barry's Mando Bay from The Kids No Good. Now, looking at uh, Joseph's notes on on him... I believe he was a German heartthrob. So, again, another German link. It's also reported that he did record these in, with English vocals as well for a release in South Africa. But I think there was some embargo going on at the time, so hence why it wasn't released. Right. So I'm not going to do when, when Do I, because obviously we the Bee Gees released that one. But I thought we'd listen to If I Were The Sky and Mando Bay. Mando Bay
0: It doesn't help for me that we have Bee Gees versions of these songs to compare them against. Yeah. And so if I'm ever going to listen to If I Were The Sky, I would listen to the Bee Gees version, which is superior.
1: It doesn't seem to me personally, things like Mando Bay, that he seems to be singing over a very similar backing track. Saccharine sweets. Yeah, it, the singing's quite bland for me, but yeah, it, it does okay. But again, it's, it's another one where it's interesting, where...
0: It, it, they've managed to cover a couple of unreleased songs. I do think it's funny that these songs have probably gained more life in in amongst collectors. There's probably more collectors of, you know, big Bee Gees fans who are picking out these songs because of their status as That's unreleased true. Bee Gees songs than they probably were at the time of people who were just buying the record. Yeah. I've not looked into Peter's discography, so I don't know whether he had a lot of hits
1: in Germany. I've I've no idea. But as you say... It's an excuse to bring out a best-of CD, isn't it? Try and sell it that way.
0: If I Were the Sky is a great song, so it was nice
1: to see that one revisited. Yeah. Mando Bay seems to me a bit a bit of a dirge, to be honest with you. Mm. I mean, it's quite slow-paced. I think the next one I find a little bit more interesting. We go from Mando Bay to Crystal Bay. Uh-huh. And this was sung by a singer called Steve Hodgson, who was an actor and he was on a children's programme in the UK. Called Follyfoot, which was, I I believe, based around a farm, and whether it's Follyfoot Farm and there was horses and and one thing and another. I I never watched it myself, so this was written by Morris and Billy Laurie. Actually, it's it's a very poppy song, probably the most poppy song, and I'm quite surprised, really. I mean, I never heard it at the time on the radio. I'm surprised it didn't get into the low reaches of the chart, but I can't see where it got anyway yeah.
0: It's a shame they didn't just go for morris and billy singing it because they did we heard with the loner how good those songs were when yeah. sung by morris and even billy so to have pulled in a i've never heard of this other singer and and it's got me thinking as to whether crystal bay was written during seventy seventy one and held over till 73 we'll cover
1: another song at the moment which which is exactly the same thing so I think that this was this was written around seventy one seventy two. It's got the feel of, of of something written around that era. I, th- I think it's a it's a worthy addition to any Bee Gees collection. And does this mark the last
0: Morris Gibb Billy Laurie collaboration? Possibly.
1: I, there's another one as well that that that, that ties in with it. Okay. But I, I think this probably was. I think because around this time Morris separated from Lulu, uh-huh. so obviously. Billy being Lulu's brother I think that virtually tied in with it so I, I would think you're right Chris I think this is probably the last last name recording from the two of them shame really they made some wonderful music and I think we've only probably only heard about a third of it so with that then we'll, we'll go on to another one which this one actually was sung by Billy Laurie and it's from his album called Ship Imagination and it's called Freedom it shore And this one looking again at joseph's notes was written between either 70 or 71 so that's when the two of them were in full flow this one probably a little more sophisticated than, than crystal bay and it needs three or four listens it's got a little hook to it that, that's quite catchy and i don't know whether i'm hearing anything or not but at the end of the, when they sing freedom the word dom it sounds like there's lulu in the background but whether i'm just hearing things i don't know
0: there's definitely another singer there with a higher register.
1: Yeah. And also Morris plays bass on this one as well. And the next one we'll do is a song called Summer Ends, which was performed by a group called Co or Koo. I'm not quite sure. But this is one of the songs from barry's fan club ep whereas that was obviously just barry on acoustic guitar this one they have gone full very middle of the road i mean personally i think you can put a few things it reminds me of a bit of bread the beginning uh, a little bit of play richard harris and then you get full-blown easy listening and you could be transported to the partridge family something like that so it's got all the the back end of the partridge family with, with yeah, and I think it it, it brings the song to life. To be honest with you.
0: In terms of covering Bee Gees songs, this does what I like to see in that we're getting a completely different type of arrangement, going transposing it from an acoustic ballad to a full-blown... Yeah, because we haven't heard this with, with
1: Barry, have we? Because obviously it
0: was just a simple simple version.
1: And again, once you've heard it a couple of times, it, it, it sort of sinks in. I
0: don't think I'd listen to it more than a couple of times. <laughs> but...
1: <laughs> so I think
0: that um, covers those up for this episode. So with this handful of covers of uh, Bee Gees songs being released... It shows that even from 1967, the demand from other artists to be covering BG songs hasn't diminished. No.
1: Well, if you look back at it, it goes back to 63, doesn't
0: it? There was about a seven-month period from about 63 to 64 when Barry wrote about 12 songs for different artists in such a small period. And they were all clamouring for for his songs. Yes. That he he could just tailor-make these songs for other artists. In this instance, it's slightly different because... When these songs were written they weren't something like summer ends. Barry had it in mind probably for himself, not for other artists. Mm. But still for these other artists to be covering them, even in foreign languages, to translate Peace in my mind, and I think that works quite well in German. Um certainly the melody stands mm. the test of time, shows you know, just how just how good these songs are.
1: Now, if you if you were going to go on a desert island disc and you had to take one of these six, which one would you take?
0: I'd probably take Freedom, just because it has Morris involved.
1: Yeah, funny enough, I was torn between that
0: one and, and possibly the last one. Or peace in my mind, I could try and teach myself German.
1: Yeah, what's it on desert island? Yeah. If I get so bored. <laughs>
0: I've pulled out a selection of reviews for Life in a Tin Can, some of them from the time of its release, and others more recent critics looking back at the album. The January 1973 issue of Record World magazine praised Life in a Tin Can. They described it as a magnificent LP by these super hit makers of beautiful music. Saw a new morning, my life has been a song, are the best of the eight epic cuts. And then better late than never in all the way in may 1973 ken barnes reviewed the album for rolling stone magazine saying that with their new album life in a tin can conditions are slightly improved but there's really nothing to get excited about two tracks do stand out method to my madness and saw a new morning currently an unsuccessful single for its dramatic production relative complexity and strong harmonies life in a tin can is vaguely pleasant and certainly innocuous enough to fit right in with the prevalent 70s soft rock ambience. Okay. So fairly dismissive. Well, he's not going to promote any more record sales for that review, is he? On to the Twitter feedback that we've received for this album, Odessa2009 says, Life in a tin can is definitely growing on me. I love the American sound. The transition between Soar A New Morning and I Don't Want To Be The One is lovely. Come Home Johnny Bridy is definitely an underrated gem that I can imagine Noel Gallagher covering. This is definitely an album that grows with every listen. Robin's vocal style during this period is gorgeous. And then Tim Roxburgh says, Life in a tin can should have been combined with the best songs from A Kick in the Head. Some beautiful songs from this era, like South Dakota Morning, King and Country, Eliza, Come Home Johnny Bridey, Method to My Madness, etc. Yeah, I agree on that. Stephen Deleu says, One of their lesser known albums, for me, most songs lacking the typical Bee Gees hook. Pleasant enough to listen to, but when handing out marks I had to listen to some of them again, having already forgotten how they sounded. Paul Eastwell says, South Dakota Morning and Saw A New Morning are fantastic tracks. I know the Bee Gees were out in limbo commercially at that point, but I'm still surprised these weren't top five chart singles. It's an album that has really grown on me over the years. And then Ethan says, I ignored this album for so long, and now it's become one of my favourites. I love that Barry and Robin share the lead on so many tracks, weaving in and out of the verses and choruses. I Don't Wanna Be The One has become one of my favourites of the Brothers songs. I've read a lot of reviews that say this album is tired and adds nothing new to the Bee Gees rep, but I disagree. It really highlights their love for country Americana genres, truly a shame that this album was slept on. And then over to Facebook, Frode Apeland says, Life in a Tin Can is a big step away from the Bee Gees' previous material. Gone are Bill Shepherd's wonderful strings and we are left with simpler arrangements based on acoustic guitar and piano. This feels like a concept album from the brothers. It is not one of the Bee Gees' best albums, but I am now quite fond of it because it is different from the rest and because it has some of the great melodies. I particularly like the songs Saw a New Morning South Dakota Morning, My Life Has Been a Song, and Come Home Johnny Bridey. I can understand why it was not a big success, but I'm still glad they made an album like this. I enjoy listening to it. And on email, Daniel Navarro said, So, this is what a Bee Gees album sounds like without Bill Shepherd. The songs sound a bit more stripped down, and some could have used Shepherd's touch. Especially My Life Has Been a Song. With only eight songs, the album is short on material, but the songwriting is still awesome. The only one that I did not like was Method to My Madness. I like the way Saw A New Morning blended into I Don't Want To Be The One. This is going to be repeated in the Mr. Natural album, which oh, is yeah. what we said. And then Navarro concludes saying, perfect album to play on a lazy Sunday morning. With a bottle of wine. Yeah, exactly a fair split there with the yeah. reviews. As you said, fifty fifty.
1: It is an album you need to absorb in, you need to listen to it a few
0: times. It, it it's just a grower. In my mind, Life in a Tin Can is possibly the most misunderstood Luigi's yeah. albums. I think it's marred by the fact that the next album was cancelled because that kind of it reflects badly when you look at Life in a Tin Can that this that this was the album that that caused a subsequent album yeah, to be cancelled. I think that the highest it got was number ninety four in the US, which is probably their worst performing album. Ironic, considering everything that we'd said about the American genre of the album. Maybe the Bee Gees could have gone the other way, done an album that was quintessentially English, and then that they could have, like the Kinks and people
1: like that. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's worth having in the canon, isn't it?
0: Counting up both of our scores, you'd rated the album overall a 7.5 out of 10. Yeah. And mine was a 6.9 out of 10. Okay. And then taking a look at the results of the survey that I put out, rating the album from lowest to highest, any guesses of what the bottom song would be? Probably While I Play or something like that. That was close. It was Living in Chicago, 6.6. Yeah. In joint sixth place... Saw A New Morning and While I Play, 6.9. In fifth place, Come Home Johnny Bridey, 7.4. In third place, Method To My Madness, 7.5. In second place, My Life Has Been A Song, 7.6. And in joint first place, South Dakota Morning and I Don't Want To Be The One, with a 7.8. Were those the songs that you expected to be top of the list? I mean, some of my favourites were at the top anyway, so I'm quite happy about that as well.
1: And they're both three, would you say, out of them two of them are very
0: Robin, very prominent on both those, aren't they? But I think really it's an album that any song you could take out of you could extract from the album and enjoy it as much as any other song on the album. They they sort of they're all they're eight parts of a piece. Yeah. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. And and the overall ...effect of them being sequenced together... ...and sequenced I think in such a a good way... There, ...there is maybe a couple of changes I would make... ...but overall it's an album that flows so nicely... ...and it flows as well even on CD
1: doesn't it... ...you know you you haven't physically got to turn the vinyl over... ...you just listen to it all the way through...
0: ...and again what we said about two years on... ...when you get to the end of the album... and, ...and if it automatically loops back to the beginning of the album... ...even that final transition from the fade out of Method to My Madness... Back into the opening guitar lick of Saw a New Morning. It's a loop, isn't it? Yeah, it works just as nicely as any other transition on the album. With all that said and done, and with everything put back inside of the tin can, (laughs) that brings us to the end of today's episode. In the next episode, we're going to be looking at the follow up album that never was, A Kick in the Head Is Worth Eight in the Pants. Well, normally, Chris,
1: we usually end with a preview of What's to Come, but I thought with the sad passing of Olivia Newton John, I thought we'd end up with one of my favourite songs of hers and the one she duets with Andy on After Dark. And I think we did mention this song earlier on, actually, called Rest Your Love.
2: on my shoulders Put your worries in my pocket Rest your love on me oh while Lay your troubles on my shoulders Put your worries in my pocket Rest your love on me a while Put your worries in my pocket, rest your love on me, why? Yeah. Lay your trust on my shoulders, But your
3: worries in my pocket,
2: rest your love.